I am the colonial revolution to Africa's recent history in four lectures, which this is the first. This will look specifically at the concept of development, which organized the transition to independence and which is more problematic today. We'll look at the post-colonial state next time, and then at South Africa in particular, and finally try to wrap things up and look forward, if possible. This is a book I had quite a lot to do with, The Political Economy in Africa, edited by Vishnu Hadayachi, and I really think it's uh, the best of its kind, and if you haven't consulted it yet, I, I would strongly recommend that. The, I've suggested that the introduction and the first three review chapters, plus one or two nearer the end, uh, are particularly worth looking at. For me, these questions all hinge on the periodization of the last 200 years, and just to recapitulate, I suggest that the period from the 1880s to the First World War uh, resembles the one that we've just been through, a period of imperialism and financial globalization, in which some areas boomed spectacularly, the wild rubber boom in Brazil, the expansion into Siberia, South Africa's exploitation of uh, minerals, and so on. So, uh, I mean, Lenin, I think, wrote the best book on development. It's called The Development of Capitalism in Russia, and it was published in 1899. It's about 800 pages. The chapter on the peasantry is 150 pages just by itself. And something that has been, I think, almost entirely forgotten is that from 1890 to uh, 1913, Russia's annual economic growth rate was in the region of 10% for three decades. Uh, there were many people who felt at that time that Russia was already overtaking the United States. But then, of course, in 1913, the boom stopped, then the First World War, then the Russian defeat, then the revolution, etc. So, uh, people who believe that China is on some inexorable march to global domination might want to think about that example. I mean, China's growth rate has been slightly less for slightly less period, and I believe its political contradictions are quite severe, and indeed it may well also be embroiled in a world war. So, we need to keep these things in mind, but the experience of war brought to an end that globalization of markets and finance that uh, that marked the period around 1900 that uh, Arthur Lewis identified as the distinctive period of the formation of the uh, current world order. 
And because of war, and then the disruptions of the next 30 years, from 1914 to 45, uh, most economies turned inwards. I mean, in other words, the period of globalization drew the world's economies outwards uh, into an expanded uh, world market and uh, global flows of money and so on. Uh, but the war necessarily disrupted that and, and this became an extended period in which governments increasingly looked towards their own national and internal development as the solution to their problems. So nationalism became the, the defining characteristic of economic strategy and with it a loss of an orientation to the world. You can see in South Africa, for example, in the governments of the 1920s, uh, especially the PAC government of 1924. We can come uh, back to that. So, the idea that the world society was disrupted and uh, fragmented uh, by this period of what Churchill called the Second Thirty Years' War. Um, it put pay to the, the general orientation to history that had animated the 19th century. Uh, and of course that was a, an attitude which was based on the idea that everything was moving, probably in a certain direction, that this movement was global, and it was called evolution. And the idea was that evolution was progressive. And of course, as I mentioned, uh, this was uh, this idea of progress was undermined by various things, but especially by the First World War. So the idea of progress changed in the first half of the 20th century, and indeed was put on the back burner. It was no longer obvious that there was this inexorable movement forward nor indeed that it was global in its character. The period after 1945 is unique and distinctive and we really do have to understand it. It was the period when essentially the Americans left Stalin to cultivate his own bloc uh, in Eastern Europe and, uh, and, and Russia. It was a period when European empires were dismantled, the beginning in Asia, especially India and Indonesia to start with, also by the Chinese Revolution, all in the 1940s, a dismantling that extended to Africa uh, in the course of the 50s and uh, culminated in mass uh, independence in the late 50s and 60s. So this was the period where the idea of global progress was revived. But it was revived in a different form from Victorian and late 19th century notions because of the uh, emphasis on national society and controls and, uh, that had developed in the first half of the, of the 20th century. And evolution was discarded and replaced by actually a very similar word, development. So essentially what happened was that 
the peoples of the world, with or without, not always with their direct volition, opted for a version of progress that depended on strong states. And these states have come to be called, in retrospect, developmental states. States that were committed to expanding the economic horizons of their citizens. These states were not conceived of as being part of the imperial systems or uh, linked globally in any particular way. They were conceived of as being essentially independent, nor were they limited to the Western industrial societies, although each of these, the main ones, took the lead in this respect. Uh, Stalin's Russia and the dependent bloc uh, went through remarkable periods of economic growth in this period, even though they were less integrated with the world market economy at that time. And I think I've mentioned earlier that, that many uh, observers in the period of the 50s and 60s and even up to the 70s, people who were not themselves committed communists, Imagine, you know, thought that a good case could be made that the Russian model was more durable and progressive than the American model. That was more or less, I mean, the turning point was the period of, of Brezhnev in the 70s, which was one of stagnation, followed by Reagan's presidency, which was very aggressive on the military and other fronts, and, uh, and of course, led eventually to the collapse of the Soviet Union. But this idea, you know, that the Cold War was necessarily between one certain winner and one certain loser was not how most people experienced it. No, and despite the ideological contrast between free market enterprise and state socialism, I mean, many writers in this period identifying the similarities between American and Russian economy. I mean, from the left, there were critics of the Soviet Union which called it state capitalism. Uh, from the right, there were those who essentially saw a convergence between forms of industrial society in the two places. And of course, the newly liberated regimes of the Third World who uh, developed their own network and series of alliances, as well as being drawn into the polarization of the Cold War, uh, these two uh, were strongly committed to developmental states. So, I mean, this was a period in which uh, the aims of government were more or less shared universally. The aim of government was to raise the economic standard for the mass of citizens by whatever was considered to be uh, the appropriate method. And it was understood that only the state could coordinate such a process. Now, this was a period of the biggest uh, boom in world uh, economy ever. And, and, and for, I mean, first of all, I mean, governments everywhere were expanding public services, raising demand where possible by putting money into the pockets of ordinary workers. They were doing it independently. There was no coordination, but the method, whether Soviet or Keynesian or 
post-colonial or whatever, uh, had the effect of, of drawing all the world's main economies into a coordinated boom. Each one of them expanded at the same time. And this was the big difference between the 19th century and the mid-20th century. In the 19th century, when Marx was writing, uh, booms and busts were local and, and uncoordinated, so that some places went up and down, but never in a way that, that produced a coordinated uh, world boom. And uh, indeed, uh, Arthur Lewis argued, as I mentioned last week, that in any case, international trade was a relatively minor aspect of these economies. So, so what we had in effect was a coordinated public sector boom that lasted for 25 years and was clearly driven by uh, state coordination and initiative. I mean, when I entered this field, the field of development studies at the end of the 60s, around 1970, there wasn't a serious economist anywhere who was not committed to one version of state-led development or the other, either Marxist or Keynesian or whatever. There were some very few maverick free market economists, but they had no influence and no intellectual credibility. In 1972, just before his downfall, uh, Richard Nixon said, we're all Keynesians now. Uh, this is a right-wing American Republic, saying you know, that everybody understands that it is the responsibility of the state to ensure the economic progress of its citizens. And that unraveled in the 70s, and it was replaced at the end of the 70s with the election not only of Reagan and Thatcher, but also Nakasone in Japan, Kohl in Germany. It was replaced by a series of regimes that we now call neoliberal, and who, who were essentially committed to replacing the state with the market as the driver of development. So this period of the 70s is absolutely crucial if we're going to understand what's going on. And the period since the 70s has retained the idea of development, but not the reality. Uh, in other words, what I would claim is that seen as a global phenomenon from the late 40s to the early 70s, development was the alliance of rich and poor countries to bring up the economic level of the latter. And uh, although we are now extremely uh, cynical about the premises of development, I would argue that, that in those three, three decades after the Second World War, a serious development did in fact take place, and it was based partly on international collaboration. I mean, for example, in Ghana, where I worked, the colonial regime had never committed itself to public services on any scale, education, health, transport, infrastructure, any of that stuff. And yet, in the 1960s, there was a shift to universal primary education, 
massive developments of hospitals and schools and roads, airports and so on. And uh, I mean, how this public expansion was financed is, you know, became clearer later. It was sometimes on quite shaking grounds, but nevertheless, it was real. And somehow, after the 70s, the plug was pulled on, on this expansion. So again, we have to understand what happened in the 70s. Because what happened in the 80s was the expansion of this neoliberal program called Structural Adjustment, Structural Adjustment Policies, which aimed to dismantle the influence of the state over the economic affairs, open up as many parts of the world as possible to the private flow of money. All of these things happened. Secondly, a debt crisis broke out of massive proportions, the third world debt crisis of the 1980s, the seeds of which were actually laid in the 70s. And so we have to understand where that debt came from and why. But it was, in fact, third world debt was a particular financial solution to the collapse of investment as a result of a depression in the world economy in the 1970s. I'll talk about that a bit later. So since the 1980s, the idea that the rich countries are helping the poor countries to, to raise the living standard of the mass of their citizens has been abandoned. Uh, economics, which in the 60s and 70s was sincerely concerned with the problem of development, became simply, the, the, the development problem became fix the prices, let the markets be free, and there will be self-correcting and development will occur anyway. So there was a kind of withdrawal from the idea that development could take place with the appropriate in institutional input became a technical question of managing prices in a global market economy. And indeed, it said, I mean, you know, so when I entered the field of development studies, there were any number of economists that I could talk to, people like John Bryden, for example, who were committed to the same things. But when I talk to young people today, they say they can't, who are not economists, they say they can't talk to the economists. They're kind of living in this self-contained bubble uh, that is impermeable from the outside. And that is a major shift, and it reflects the contrast between the last 30 years and the 30 years before. Some people, as you probably know, have argued that, I mean, the post-structuralists have argued that that uh, development is just talk. It's a, a form of discourse following Foucault and others. And it's a form of talk that disguises social reality and is not in any direct way committed to uh, economic improvement. And following that critique, uh, there has developed a, a post-development discourse which says, what we need is to abandon the word development altogether because it's full of all these contradictions and, and ideological uh, confusions and disguises and just set about working out what we're going to do by ourselves. It's a reverse 
in many cases, is going back to the kind of policy advocated by Walter Rodney, you know, or the underdevelopment theorist, or dependency theorist. We need to go get out of this system that calls itself development, which is just capitalist imperialism, and uh, you know, do our own thing and, 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 and throw out the word with it. So, it's kind of confusing. Now, to go back to my earlier lectures, if we want to understand what development is, or might be, the first framework for approaching it is the last 200 years as a whole. I mean, I've already talked about population growth, urbanization, energy production, and so on. I mean, that 200-year period is, has a certain kind of historical unity, and the driver of development is understood to be capitalism. However we go about defining that. So if we're interested in development, the first dimension we have to address is the one that includes that whole period, which is that development is the answer to the question, how did the successful countries manage it? How did some countries in the world, or even many of them by now, manage to raise themselves off the floor of a pre-industrial or pre-capitalist society? And what is the mechanism and how can we replicate it in some way? So development is the search for the kind of intrinsic driving forces that enable capitalism to fulfill its historic role, if you take a 19th century view. The historical role of capitalism, they said, and I include all the founders of modern social theory, was to emancipate mankind from the insularity of their traditional rural communities by bringing them into larger forms of association through markets and cities and industry and the rest. And the second uh, task of capitalism is, is to make uh, cheap commodities more fully available in the world. So capitalism is the way by which people get drawn into markets through an expanded production of cheap commodities. I mean, very few, if any, of these founders of social theory thought that was the end of it. They saw it as being intrinsically contradictory and they, many of them had an idea of what should come after it. But still that idea of what are the engines of economic growth that sustain capitalist development is the first and most inclusive uh, definition of the term. Now there's a book that I've got on the reading list edited by Mike Cowan and Robert Shenton called Doctrines of Development. I think this is a really good book. It was published in the early 1990s, and it too takes the whole of the last two centuries as its framework of analysis. I mean, they acknowledge that the revival of a kind of evolutionary progressive ideology after the Second World War uh, led to a particular version of development in the three decades after that war, but they 
they worked by their book against the notion that we can understand that period out of the context of what preceded it. And so they, they look at what they consider to be the principal development theories from the time of the French Revolution right through uh, to the time when they're writing. And they identify another uh, strand in development theory, which is not the positive one. I mean, how does capitalism manage it? How do they get rich? But they argued that from the beginning, it was obvious that capitalism was disruptive, that uh, capitalist development destroyed society in various ways, and that the social organizations that it threw up in the new cities and industrial centers were often pathologically dysfunctional. So another strand of, of development is the one that addresses what do we do about the mess that capitalism makes? How do we restore people from its negative and destructive effects? And, and they identify this with the school associated with Saint-Simon, which uh, in, in English would be pronounced Saint-Simon, <laughs> with a hyphen. The Saint-Simonians whose the greatest exponent was Auguste Comte, C-O-M-T-E, and who led directly to Durkheim and that French sociological school eventually. These people were concerned with how the social fabric could be restored in the face of capitalist disruption. So, I would say, by the way, that, that one of the best chapters in this book is the chapter on uh, Schumpeter, the Austrian economist who uh, ended up on the east coast of the United States and who is uh, best known for uh, one of his, uh, uh, quite a few phrases, but he, he's the one who spoke about capitalism as a process of creative destruction. And in fact, he applied this to the predicament of the Western economies after the Second World War in which he, point, he argued that, and I think I've mentioned this before, that the uh, obliteration of cities like Tokyo and Berlin and uh, many parts of Britain and, and France and so on uh, actually represented an opportunity, the opportunity to rebuild. That wiping stuff out is good for capitalism kind of thing. Which in some sense, with the alignment of the Marshall Plan, it turned out to be, not least in Germany and Japan. So, we come back to our period, the period after the First World War, when states dominated, Second World War, when states dominated, and the period after, uh, in which uh, global markets were reasserted, Carol and Shenton argued that development has meant one of these two things, but rarely both at once. And that one way of understanding the shift between the immediate post-war period and more recently is that in the immediate post-war period there was a commitment to capitalism mark one, how to get rich, and in the second this was replaced by essentially sticking plaster over the wounds of capitalism 
doing little things around the world to save people from the consequences of famine and AIDS and uh, impoverished uh, welfare services and so on and so forth. So against those who say that development has always been, or and certainly more recently, a sham, there are those who say, well, you know, the emphasis has now been on kind of, on the sanctimonious side of development. People don't go to Tanzania with any serious effort, you know, idea in mind of, of raising the economic level of the people, just trying to make their lives a bit more tolerable in some limited way. I, I, I mentioned France, uh, there's a, a, an American sociologist called Daniel Bell who wrote several books, but one of them is called The Cultural Crisis of Capitalism. And in that book, he asks himself the question, what was the, the turning point in the process that allowed capitalism to triumph in the late Cold War period and after? And uh, his answer is really quite interesting. He says, French capitalism. I mean, the thing about France is that they have been invaded three times in 70 years by the Germans. That on uh, every time their infrastructure was severely damaged, uh, the confidence to rebuild uh, was very intermittent. In 1945, France had a 19th century infrastructure in terms of housing, industry, roads, and the rest of it. It also had the largest communist party in Europe, uh, a very uh, powerful uh, political force. And you know, so in the 50s and 60s, the presence of this powerful communist force in France was a, a tangible reminder of of the alternative to capitalist development. And of course, the French developed a, a form of state capitalism in which the government supported uh, high-tech industries in a highly centralized way that turned out to be quite successful. And uh, essentially, uh, the French uh, Communist Party went the same way as the Cold War. In Africa, and this book can address the question in detail far more than I, there were several phases. The first phase was the one after the, first, the Second World War, in which many colonial regimes decided to commit to expansion of welfare, public services, and income in their colonies. For it, the most uh, striking examples of that were the Gold Coast, uh, Uganda, and Kenya, in, in, in the British case. As I said before, and as you know, the, the settlers developed a rather different form. But the basic idea of development in, in this period uh, goes by the name of ISI, Import Substituting Industrialization. The idea that imports would be replaced by developing industrial production capacity aimed at the home market. Lenin's book, The Development of Capitalism in Russia, has as its subtitle, 
the formation of a home uh, of a home market adequate to capitalist development or something like that. And this idea of industrialization through import substitution uh, had been developed uh, particularly in Latin America, but also in countries like South Africa during the period of war, especially. Uh, and indeed, the, the apartheid regime uh, that came to power in 1948 embarked on such a process of development uh, aim principally at meeting the needs of white people. So this is the first, in most of these places, there was uh, a shift towards the idea of greater self-sufficiency and diversification of production, less dependency on uh, markets, on world markets. But the fact is that the, the most affluent of the African countries, such as Ghana, uh, depended very heavily on agricultural exports, as Arthur Lewis indicated. I mean, Ghana owned 50% of the world market for cocoa in 1960, and that's why it, uh, Ghana had an economy larger than Indonesia's and per capita income equal to South Korea's. 40 years later, 30 years later even, Indonesia had four times the per capita income of, of Ghana and South Korea 47 times. So, one of the things we have to understand is uh, how did this period of initial investment and expansion, industrial and public, how did this become by the 1980s and 90s uh, what we might call uh, Africa's lost decades. I mean, because certainly by the end of the century, most places in Africa were worse off than they were at independence. And this has been changed recently, and we need to understand why, or whether it's significant or not. I mean, in this book, Bill Freund has an article in which he argues that the fortunes of African countries are largely a function of international commodity prices. So the strength of their economy really reflects the, the market for, for commodities. So that, I mean, in, in 2008-9, Angola was the fastest uh, growing economy in the world, 23% per annum. But this was the point at which the credit boom uh, was channeling resources into uh, basic commodities in, in, in anticipation of the collapse of stock markets and other financial instruments. I don't believe this story, that it's just a question of fluctuating international commodity prices, but people like me and Bill Freund have been disappointed too often to be you know, readily accept the latest upbeat story from the economies, you know, Africa and rampant and so on and so forth. So, the first source of development capital, if you like, was revenues from agricultural exports for these new countries. And it has to be said in the 60s and part of the 70s, the international financial regime was extremely lenient towards these countries. 
I mean, in other words, the, they were overspending beyond what they were earning, but they were not being called on it at this time. Now, but increasingly, governments came to rely on their monopoly of the financial instruments that articulated their country economy to the rest of the world. In other words, the main source of, 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 of government revenue, if you like, was its uh, monopoly of finance. And the fact that each regime was given a dependent place at the table as long as they didn't rock the boat. The history of the 70s is really has to be revisited, but as I mentioned in my lecture on Wednesday night, a series of events, the American losing war in Vietnam, destabilized international finances, created, finance created uh, massive fluctuations in exchange rates. The Americans resolved that problem by going off gold, which had a massive uh, consequence for South Africa, at least in the short term, by increasing the, uh, the value of uh, gold by eight times in the course of the 1970s. I mean, it was itself, this process of America going off gold was a huge redistributive measure because um, the Americans had the gold, but everybody else had American dollars. The, the, the new regimes were holding treasury paper. The treasury paper devalued rapidly and the price of gold increased dramatically. So the result was that people who had substantial gold reserves benefited immensely from this and people who didn't lost an awful lot of money. Which meant mostly the recently decolonized uh, regimes. 1972 saw the emergence of uh, money market futures in Chicago and they, that then developed. And uh, 1973 was the real turning point because this was the time following uh, the Young People War and preceding it to some extent where the Americans developed a new method for securing their interests in the oil-producing regions of the Middle East, which was to back, it's not that they hadn't backed Israel before, but it became much more obvious that Israel was the kind of policeman for American interests in the region, and they demonstrated their ability to fight off Russian-backed regimes in Egypt and Syria and elsewhere. In any case, the OPEC cartel was founded, this was presented as the Saudis and their friends insisting on getting more money for their oil. I mean, I for one have never believed that the Saudis had the independent power to force the Americans to do anything, especially since all the oil was produced by American companies and all the military protection they had was coming from America. But this became, as I understand it, the beginning of another huge a redistribution of wealth, the artificial increase in the price of, uh, of oil took demand out of the Western industrial economies. I mean, very seriously, it produced a, a recession, depression immediately. The Saudis, of course, I mean, have all this money now. 
What can they do with it? There's a limit to how many F-16s they can buy. They don't have a population to spend money on. I mean, what are they going to do with all this money? Well, the first thing that they did was to buy $20 billion of American T-bonds. So in other words, OPEC was an American scam to take money off its own producers and consumers and put it into the state coffers via the Saudis. That's just one aspect of it. But it is, and it was essentially a backdoor tax. And it was a redistribution towards the state. But there was still a lot of money. The OPEC surplus was swirling around the banking system. They couldn't yet put the money into the Soviet empire. They hadn't figured out how to do that. Although Nixon, uh, had already, I mean, very bright man, had, had always, I mean, he had this idea which he called vodka cola. The idea was how to draw the Russians into the American sphere of trade. And, and the question, that what they said was, there's no way we're going to buy as many bottles of, of vodka from them as, as they're going to buy coke from us. So what is it that they have that we can buy? And their idea was cheap labor, cheap controlled labor. So in the course of the 70s, the World Bank and others started investing in client regimes in Poland and different places to develop outsourced industrial production for American corporations. And they would be paid for that labor. I mean, there was another problem, which was, how do you get the stuff out of the Eastern Bloc since it's boycott? I mean, the rules prohibit buying this stuff. But East Germany, when it split with West Germany, was identified as a single state, a single legal entity, Germany. I mean, after the war. So, in principle, East Germany was part of Germany, and so it became a port of export for industrial manufacturers coming out. And so vast amounts of World Bank money went into countries like Poland and Hungary and East Germany itself. But that wasn't available. That solution hadn't been kind of worked out yet. So that the first world, as it were, is suffering from a deficit of demand because of this transfer from people to the state. The, the second world is out, that just leaves the third world. And so the banks then went on a completely mad uh, credit extension rampage around Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, and so on, just lending money at whatever rate they could, often to corrupt regimes who transferred the bulk of it directly into Swiss bank accounts. Now, the idea that money was going to be paid back out of the interest and the rest of it would be paid from development return, returns on investment. But the fact is that none, there wasn't really any serious investment. This was just essentially payoff for corrupt client regimes. And by the end of the 1970s, in 1979, OPEC made another price rise which provoked an attack on the dollar, a very serious attack on the dollar, 
And the Federal Reserve Chairman, Paul Volcker, at the time in 7980, remember the same time that the Reagan and Thatcher were coming in, raised interest rates to 20%. Okay? So these loans have been undertaken at variable interest rates and with the expectation of, expectation of returns on investment. And suddenly, by the end of the 70s, the interest charged on these loans went up to 20%. In many regimes, certainly in Africa and elsewhere, found that a half or more of their annual budget was taken up in interest repayments. And of course, several of them attempted to get out of the deal, repudiate the debts, say that they were fallaciously committed in the first place, and that was the third world debt crisis of the early 80s. In fact, in the end, as in the case of the financial crisis of 2008, the American banks got 100% back on their money. Just like Goldman Sachs got 100% back on the money through down the drain at AIG. So, after this, many third world countries were completely up against the wall. They had no development fund. They were essentially captive to powerful financiers and military and political forces abroad. And as a result, the 1980s and, and 90s uh, were a period in which African economies went seriously backward. And of course, under these circumstances, saying that the partnership between the rich and the poor countries is, is the former helping the other to become richer. I mean, it's an obscene joke. This period in the early 80s, the first half of the 80s, people have done the songs. They say that in the whole history of Western imperialism, there was never a more effective means of transfer from the poor peripheral regions to the industrial center than then. This transfer of money, I mean, completely bankrupted vast sectors of the world. Not, it might be said, Asia, which took this opportunity uh, in the uh, 1980s and 90s to set out on its own form of capitalist development quite seriously. But Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East especially, has suffered irremediably from this. I mean, you remember Isabel Hillenkamp last week, I mean, coming here and talking about the 1980s as a lost decade in Latin America, in Bolivia. Uh, it's all part of the same thing, and uh, I mean, it, it is, of course, outrageous. I mean, David Graeber, in his book on debt, says that the third world debt crisis was the immediate context for him becoming aware of the global significance of debt and the political struggles that came out around it. So what I'm suggesting then is that after the Second World War, the colonial regimes and then the post-colonial regimes, in many cases seriously committed to expanding public services and towards making the economy internally more self-sufficient, while at the same time uh, taking advantage of agricultural exports opportunities. That the agricultural exports could not sustain the amount of public expenditure 
And that was the context for my book, The Political Economy of West African Agriculture. I said, you know, I wrote it in 1979 originally. I said, you know, that the Africans are trying to build uh, modern, expanded states on the basis of backward agriculture, small-scale agricultural production. And even though some of that small-scale agricultural production is aimed at export markets, these export markets, as Lewis points out, are highly vulnerable to uh, changes in the sources of supply and demand and so on. So I argued that unless African countries could develop a, a significant mechanized form of production, call it whatever you like, capitalism, socialism, it doesn't matter, but unless they were able to develop that, then this political superstructure that had been built after independence would collapse, as it did, for example, in Haiti after the slave revolution there. That's my, and you know, and then in the 80s and 90s, what we saw was the emergence of large numbers of so-called failed states. Failed states are just states that can't control their territories. And they can't control their territories because they don't have an economy adequate to the kind of society and state that they aspire to. And for this reason, I was quite heartened in 1980, after the Rhodesian War, the formation of modern Zimbabwe, when Robert Mugabe got into a big argument with Joshua Nkomo, who was uh, his partner, if you like, in the liberation struggle. Joshua Nkomo believed that the white farms should be seized and distributed in a land reform to the victorious soldiers as small plot. And Mugabe said, look, if we aspire to develop a modern political economy in Zimbabwe, we can't afford to dismantle the most advanced sectors of production. That was his line then. It changed, obviously, 20 years later. But, I mean, I thought, oh, that's great. I mean, some people have actually begun to observe what has happened so far and to, to make, uh, uh, say, notice, you know. And, and when Mandela was released and the ASC came to power, I thought, this is even better because, I mean, they've had another 20 years or 15 years to learn from the failures of the rest of Africa. So, but apparently they had not. But this, this, I believe, is the development question, and it has to do with the kind of society, the kind of state, the method that is appropriate to sustain it. And I, like the economist, have become quite bullish about Africa's prospects, which I will reveal in the last lecture. But in the next one, we'll talk about the critique of the post-colonial state in Africa. Thank you.